Great to have everybody, and as, as we continue in our second week of our series, title of which is on the screen, When We Have to Choose, we had the introductory lesson last week, covered part of the, the first lesson. Today we'll pick up on page five, so if you have the notebooks, everybody have one? Anybody need one? Page five. And before we get into that, uh, let me just ask you to pray about uh, some things coming up. One is tomorrow. As I mentioned in the first hour, we have a meeting with our architect and our builder, uh, we being our building committee, about the expansion to this, this room. That work has been going forward for a few months, but it's all of the work behind the scenes of drawings and planning and getting approvals from the city. So we're now, over the next few weeks, getting to some crucial points with all of that. The site plan which is the outside stuff and where the parking is going to go and all that, has been submitted to the city. And one week from Wednesday, we will be before their planning commission seeking approval of that site plan. So that's something for you to pray about as well, okay? Approval one week from Wednesday uh, for the site plan. And then uh, tomorrow we have a, a planning session with our, our architect. Uh, also, as I mentioned last week and first hour uh, today, we are hoping to get our air conditioning units up uh, very soon. Thankfully, it's not as hot today as it has been some other days, but we're getting into July now, and over the next few months, every Sunday could be roasting. So we want to try to get those units up as soon as we can. I'm told that weather permitting, that might happen this week. We thought it might happen last week. Uh, but this ductwork right here and there don't have anything attached to them right now. Uh, they were just put up in anticipation of us being able to put units up there we can do that. We purchased the units. We actually own them. So they need to have, we have a crane out here that's going to put those up and have to get hooked up. So hopefully that'll happen this week, but uh, very soon. And then this place will be uh, nice and cool for us uh, this summer and uh, in the years to come. And then we'll have a new couple of units on the extension that we're hoping to add to the building. One week from Wednesday is that meeting before the Planning Commission, but also that same night is our first of two Backyard Fellowships. So you all will be at the Backyard Fellowship, and then a handful of us will be at the Planning Commission meeting. You guys will all be having a great time. Don't, don't worry about me. It's all fine. Um, in fact, I know no one, no one does worry about me when they go to these things. How do I know this? Because last year the exact same thing happened. We had Planning Commission meeting. We had the Backyard Fellowship. I didn't get to go. And, I don't know, 50 people said, that was the best fellowship we have ever had. <laughs> it's like the one fellowship I've missed was the best fellowship we have ever had. And so I know I'm going to hear from 100 or so this year about this one being now the best we've ever had, since I won't be there. But plan on going. It will be a great time over at the Mashinskys. All right, when we have to choose. This is a series about decision-making and the will of God. And as we saw last week, we all, of course, have decisions to make, big and small, uh, throughout every day and every week and throughout our lives. Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that God only cares about the big decisions in, in life. But I tried to make the case last week that God cares about every decision we make, even things that we think are insignificant. Uh, now, those smaller things, a choice about where you're going to go to lunch or those kinds of things, those smaller things can become second nature to us so that we don't have to consciously sit and think about them if we will implement a plan like we're going to be going over over the next few months. 
So I can fit the smaller decisions into the big picture, but I have to know that big picture in order to know whether these things that I'm doing, these expenditures that I'm making, whether or not they are advancing the purpose for which I'm here. And so we are going to try to work together through that. Why am I here? What is it I'm supposed to be accomplishing? And then how can I put my decisions, big and small, within that framework? Now, to that end, we have been looking at just some general principles in the first lesson about God's will, what God wants, what God desires. Because if we're going to make proper decisions as Christians, it goes without saying that we want to make those decisions in accord with God's desires in ways that please God. So last week, we saw that there are two ways to to think of God's will. There are two aspects to to God's will given in Scripture. One is that God has a sovereign decreed plan. And God's sovereign decreed plan is whatever comes to pass, whatever happens. Nothing happens outside of God's control. There is not, as you all have heard me say, there is not a maverick molecule in God's universe. There is not one molecule in the universe floating around on its own outside of God's control, not one. So there is God's decreed will, God's plan, God's sovereign will, and that is whatever comes to pass. And the only way you can know that is if, one, God were to tell you in advance what He's going to do. Now, in some respects, He's done that because we have some sections of the Bible called predictive prophecy, right? So He's predicted, He's told us some things that are going to happen that are part of God's sovereign plan that you could know ahead of time. Things like the coming and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He predicted that. He told us that. That's part of His sovereign plan. He's decreed that Christ would be the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. And He's carried that out in time. And He told us about that. So, but most aspects of God's decreed sovereign plan are unknown to us. We don't know them until after the fact. And so, not only don't you have to worry about that then... The whole point of God telling us that He has such a plan is for us to not worry. To not worry about what's going on today because somehow it, the good and the bad and the ugly, all fit into this grand scheme. So that's one aspect of God's will, sovereign decreed plan. You normally know that after it happens. If you want to know God's sovereign plan for today, I said last week, ask me tomorrow. And it'll be what happened today. Okay? Now, that's God's sovereign plan. But then there is God's, so God's sovereign will. But then there is God's moral will, God's revealed will. And this is, by, its very, by the very name, His revealed will. That is, He's made it known. He's told us, this is what I want. This is what I want from you. This is what I want you to do. And it is that aspect of God's will that we have to concern ourselves with. We need to know that God is in control and God has a sovereign plan and He is executing that absolutely on time and to perfection. We need to know that. That's why Scripture tells us about it, to comfort us in the midst of what looks like chaos. We need to know about that, but we need to do His moral will. You know, I can't plan to do His sovereign will, right? Because I I don't know what it is. But I can plan to do His moral will because it's been revealed. Bottom of page 4, Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 29, 
captures both of these. Well, in fact, look just before the verse and the note that we saw at the end of our time last week. The key distinction between God's sovereign moral will is this. It's revelation. God's sovereign will is revealed after the fact. His moral will is revealed in Scripture. God's plan, that is His sovereign will, is known only to Him. His desire, His moral will, has been given in Scripture. And Deuteronomy 29.29 captures both of those. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So as we know about God's sovereign will, we should be comforted by that. But what we are pursuing, what we're looking to do, is His moral will, because that is what He has revealed. That's what He's made known. Top of page 5 then. A question that comes up then is, does God have three wills? There are these two aspects of God's will that I've mentioned, His sovereign will and His moral will. But some people believe, based on a misinterpretation of a famous passage, that God has three distinct wills. Top of page 5, many believe that there's a third aspect of God's will in addition to His sovereign and moral wills, namely His individual will. This individual will is said to be something that we have to find. So we hear people talking about finding God's will for my life. Some even believe that God's individual will has these three levels of good and acceptable and, and perfect. So anybody heard that? You know, I've got to find God's will for my life. If you ever went to a uh, Christian college or Bible college, <laughs> believe me, you heard it. I mean, that is like the number one theme for the first semester of your time at a Bible college. You've got to find God's will for your life, okay? And so that's drilled into you. Find God's will for, for your life. And we're going to look at some of the ways, methods that are given to, to do that, but it gets drilled into you. And so I need to find God's individual will for my life like the person that he has picked out for me to marry. I need to, I need to find. Um, but, and, and, you know, the career that God has picked out for me and the major for me to pursue while I'm here at, at college. I've got to find this pinpoint individual will. Well, baby, that's a lot of pressure, right? But here's the other thing that you will be told at Bible college. Um, now, we don't know what God's individual will is for you in all those areas, you know, your career and your major and who God has lined up for you to, to marry. But here's the thing we do know. It's only going to be found on this campus. And if you leave this campus, you are out of what? Anybody ever heard of this? Oh, man, you are out of God's will. Well, that's a scary thought. Some of you have heard me tell this story, but when I was 18, I graduated from, the, uh, graduated from high school. The Pentecostal church that I grew up in had a denominational college down in Tennessee. A number of the youth group kids were going to that. I didn't know what I was doing, so they're going there. I'll go there. So I go to this unnamed college, now a university in Tennessee. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't like it from minute one. Now, here's one of the reasons I didn't like it. I had never been on the campus prior to going. Um, nobody in my family had ever gone to college. So I was the first person in my family to go to college, period. So no, I had no conception of what a college campus was like. I knew I'd be... They put you up there. 
I knew I'd be living there on campus. And so living away from home, really the only time I'd ever lived away from home was when I would go on these hockey trips. And when we were on, our hockey team was on a trip, we stayed in a hotel. So I'm going to a campus that has like a hotel on it. And then I walked into the dorm, the dorm room. And this is a crummy hotel. <laughs> this is a dank, small, rickety uh, bunk bed, ugly color. You know, it's just my heart sank when I walked in there. I've got Holiday Inn. I get this. <laughs> so it's not all the college's fault. I go with these misconceptions, but I go there and... That's what I'm looking for, so I'm not liking God's will for my life here at this, at this particular time. And as I'm unpacking my car uh, to, you know, get my stuff into this room, I've got my head inside the back seat of my car getting out a, some boxes, and I hear a voice say loud, Hi! And I turn around, and there's this kind of goofy-looking guy that sticks his hand out, introduces himself, and says, I think we're roommates. And my heart sank again. <laughs> now, he was kind enough to help me take my stuff in, and he was, a, you know, he was a nice guy. And by the time we got done with that, he says, you know, are you hungry? So we're going to go to dinner, and we went to some place, uh, a hamburger place. And um, he, before we eat, he throws his hands out on the table open palm. And we're going to pray, which I was used to doing, praying before my meal. And he says, where I come from, we hold hands when we pray. And I said, where I come from, we don't. (laughs) And I'm not holding this guy's hand. So it's just not going. It's my first day. It is just not going well, okay? So I ended up staying there. Now, I used to say I was there for two weeks. And, and then some people who knew the truth uh, ratted on me. I was there for two days. Okay? I lasted two days. And I decided I'm getting out of here. And I remember leaving the campus under the cover of night, having talked to counselors, having talked to people in the dorm, saying, you know, I don't think I've made the right decision here. This is God's will for you. You'll be out of God's will if you leave. And then the cover night's the truth. I get in my car. I pack my stuff. And I drive back to Michigan. And all the while I'm sweating, thinking, I am out of God's will. I am going north on 75, out of God's will. And the only thing I know to do is outsmart God's will the best I can by just being really careful not to get in an accident. That's all I, that's all I know to do. The whole time I'm just being extra careful so God won't get me for being out of His will. That's the truth. And it is also the truth of the way many people think about God's will. He has an individual dot-targeted will that you've got to find. And it includes those kinds of decisions, where I'm going to be for college, who I'm going to marry, what my job is going to be, what my major is going to be, and it puts tremendous pressure on people. You've got to find God's will. And I gave you some books in the opening page of your notebook that are recommended reading. At least one of the books we have in our resource center, Decision-Making in the Will of God by Gary Friesen. Some of you picked that up, thick book. But another book that I have on there is one by John MacArthur. 
And the name of that book, as you'll see on that first page, is this. Found, colon, God's will. And it's this little book, but it's extremely liberating. Because the premise of the book is God's will is not something you have to search for. That the good news is God wrote a book and he revealed his will. And if you'll do the stuff he says in his book that he's revealed, then you don't have to worry about the sovereign details and hitting the dot. You'll hit the dot just fine. So this can cause major anguish for people if they think, I've got to find this one thing, and it can paralyze people from being able to make decisions. They're afraid of making the wrong one. It also, practically speaking, is sometimes impossible to do. Now, in God's sovereign will, does he have, he, he knows every minute, every second of every day of my life, right? He know, of course. But I don't know that because it hasn't been revealed. So in his sovereign plan sense, of course he has one person for me to marry. But how am I going to determine that one person? That's the question. And is it possible for somebody to marry outside of the will of God in this scheme? The answer is yes. So here's the dilemma. Practically it doesn't work. What if the person I was supposed to marry married out of God's will before I got to him? Well, now we're shot. I'm shot for the rest of my life. I didn't even do anything. Seriously. So it's not true, most important, and practically speaking, it actually can't be done. So how is it that we pursue God's will? Well, we need to lose the idea that I need to find it as if it's lost or you know, God is hiding it or you know, something like that. And we need to understand that God does indeed have a moral will for all of us. And Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 says this, top of page 5. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, some have taken good, acceptable, and perfect to say, you want to target God's perfect will. If you blow that, I mean, their solution to me is, you know, if the person you were supposed to marry married somebody else, well, there's always acceptable will. You know, so there's good, better, and best is the idea. And that's not what Romans 12.2 is saying. It's saying the one will of God is all three of those. God's will is good. And doing God's will is acceptable to Him. Doing God's will is a demonstration of the perfection, the maturity that God is creating in those who are growing in Christ. So it's one will that has these three qualities to it. It is good and it's acceptable and it's perfect. Since God has a sovereign will that's already decreed what the future will hold for each of us and therefore for all of us, there's no doubt that there's a particular life's work that each of us will pursue. The difficulty for some is in trying to determine what it, that particular will is. Many tears have been spilled trying to ascertain God's will for one's life. And as I've said, the result is not, not good. Now in a later session, we'll study the passages that are cited to justify this idea. But for now, just see that God has one will that has these three aspects. And you see there, we say good, acceptable, and perfect all refer to one, not three. And the one will 
that's given now in Romans 12 is God's moral revealed will. If you go read then Romans 12, it's then going to lay out the kinds of things that are God's will for us. Do this stuff. Live this way. Do not return evil for evil. Do not be overcome by evil. These are all instructions in Romans chapter 12 that are God's moral will revealed by God for us to pursue. So with that then, how do I mesh me making decisions, you making decisions with God's sovereign plan? And that's the middle of page 5. Failure to properly distinguish between God's sovereign and moral will can cause us to mistake His desires as well as use improper means to discover His will. Here are some common approaches to trying to find God's will, usually because we have a false notion about having to find it and that kind of stuff. So here's the first. It's feeling-based decision-making. Feeling-based decision-making. And if somebody is pursuing their decisions uh, in pursuit of God's will this way, it will sound often like what the quote you see there, I felt led of the Lord to do X. I, ju- I just felt led to whatever it is. And feelings then, if you're not very careful, become sovereign when in fact our feelings can fool us very easily, can't they? You know, well, I just felt in my heart I should do X, Y, or Z. But we have to bear in mind, friends, that Jeremiah 17.9 always applies. That the heart of man is evil, desperately wicked. And then Jeremiah asks the question, who can what? Who can know it? So we can easily be, and often are, misled by our feelings. I want to recommend to you, more importantly, I believe Scripture teaches, we don't make our decisions based on feelings. We don't make our decisions based on holy hunches. We make our decisions based upon God's revealed moral will. So, But people pursue that, feeling-based decision-making. Another one is outcome-based decision-making. And if somebody's taking that approach, what they're concerned about is how it turns out. If it turns out good, it was a good decision. If it turns out bad, it was a bad decision. That's the, that's the idea. Isn't it true, dear friends, in Scripture, that you have people who have made absolutely godly decisions that turned out horrendously? It often turns out bad for God's people. Often. They make a good and godly choice to follow the Lord and it leads them to calamity. So much for Joel Osteen. I mean, really. It's all going to be prosperity and health and wealth. And yet you just do a cursory reading of the Bible and it ain't like that. And it wasn't because these people were dumb or foolish. As a matter of fact, they're following God. But they follow God and they wind up in jail. They follow God and they wind up hated. They follow God and they wind up penniless. So the outcome outcome may turn out well, but it may not. And whether it turned out well or not says zero, nada, nothing about the wisdom of the particular decision. The wisdom of the decision has to stand on its own merits. 
And how it turns out, I can't control, you can't control. So people who, and, and people who are outcome-based folks, it's got to turn out right in order for it to be a good decision. You can see that they too are going to have a very hard time pulling the trigger on a decision. Because how do you know it's going to turn out right? I mean, the truth of the matter is, ultimately, you never know that. You never actually know it's going to turn out right. I have been married to Kimmy for 28 years. And thanks be to God, it turned out right. It has turned out more than right. It's turned out wonderful. But when you're in your early 20s and you get married, you know it's going to turn out right? I mean, I know that, absolutely. I was very confident. But do I know it? Absolutely, the answer is no. I don't know it absolutely. Neither, and, and she definitely didn't know. I mean, she was really gambling. Man. <laughs> okay, I, mean, I wasn't taking much of much of a gamble, but she was just laying it all on the line. Okay, hoping that I'd grow up and mature. So you don't know. You never know. The only person who knows how that thing is going to turn out is who? God. So outcome-based decision-making is incorrect. Opportunity-based decision-making. And this is usually the language of open doors. You know, and, and, I, and I hear, I've heard, believe me, I've heard them all. Well, you know, God just opened the door for us to buy. Now, I'm going to throw this out there. I don't know who is in this category, so I'm not trying to beat on anybody. It's just an example. But if you make a decision and you say, you know, I'm buying a yacht, Okay. And God just opened the door for this yacht to be, you know, on eBay for a great price. And, you know, I had been praying about, you know, a good way to relax and to rest. And next thing I know, here's this yacht on eBay for me to buy. You know, and, and not only that, let me up the ante a little bit here. I happened to find it on eBay at the very time I was praying about it. I mean, come on. Quote, that's a God thing. And I've heard that. That's a God thing. It's a God thing because it happened in sequence like that. So I can't pass it up. God opened the door. Well, that may or may not have been a good decision. But I'll tell you this, it wasn't a good decision because it popped up on your screen at a particular time. If it's a good decision or a bad decision, it has to stand on its own merits. Does this help you advance in the direction that God has called us to go? If it does, it's a good decision. So those are ways you don't make decisions but, or shouldn't, but lots of people do. Feeling, outcome, opportunity. Here's the way you should make decisions. Purpose-based decision-making. And people who do that talk like this. This decision is to advance God's revealed purpose. I'm making this decision in order to make progress, to move forward in God's revealed, the purpose that He has made known for us to pursue. Purpose-based. Now, think about yourself in the box there. Which of these best describes you? You know, each of these has some merit, meaning that 
you know, if you don't, if you don't feel right about a decision, then there's no harm in not making it unless it's a direct command of God. But don't, as I've said, base whether you should make the decision on how you feel. God in His sovereignty sometimes will open doors to, say, buy a building to advance His mission. And I think it's quite proper to say God opened a door for us to do that. So all of these have appropriate aspects, but the simple fact that this building was available and we were praying about a building doesn't make it the right decision. So all of them have some merit, but there's only one that should be driving our lives. Each of the first three all have in common the fact that they can be manufactured or misunderstood. They can be counterfeited or manipulated. Only mission-based decision-making can give us clear direction for our lives. All right. So in the next lesson, then, we're going to talk about mission-based decision-making and then try to break that down in the weeks to come which means we have to know what the mission is, what our purpose is, so that we can fit our decisions, big and small, into that. But before we go on to the second session, we'll probably spend the remaining of our time, of our time today on these uh, couple of pages, pages 6 and 7. And that is to clear up the idea of God's sovereignty and our sin as best we can. And if you were here last week, if you were in the service during the first hour, you heard that we are convinced, I hope you're convinced, that God teaches in His Word that He is absolutely in control of everything that happens. And nothing happens outside of His decree. But that does raise questions for us that are hard for us to get our minds around. There's no doubt about that. And one of those is, God somehow uses the sin of people to advance His purpose. There's no doubt about that either, is there? I mean, there isn't. I mean, let me answer it for you. <laughs> I know that God uses the sin of people to advance His sovereign plan. I know He does. Because Jesus died on the cross at the hands of wicked men. That was a murder. People murdered Jesus. They sinfully murdered Him. You know, and they won't stand before God at the judgment, as I said last week, and say, but this was part of your plan. And God's going to say to them, you played a role in my plan exercising what your nature desired to do. And when you were confronted with me, with God, you hated me and killed me. And they will be held responsible. So there's no doubt that God uses the sinful acts of men to advance his sovereign plan. How does that fit together? Top of page 6. If God sovereignly plans all things, and all things include my sin, then doesn't God plan my sin? If God plans my sin, does not that mean that I'm not really responsible for it? Such go the arguments of those who are trying to find an excuse for their sin. Now, let me, let me stop there. Can I encourage you all to read? By the way, I just said y'all. If you were in the first hour, that's the second person plural in English is y'all. And if you're really serious, it's all y'all, okay? From, in Pikeville, it's all y'all, all right? But something I would encourage you all to do is uh, read Romans chapter 9 as it relates to God's sovereignty. And what you will find in Romans chapter 9, particularly as you get toward the end, 
along around verse 16, where it says, quote, it does not therefore depend upon man's desire or effort, but upon God's mercy. And then says, quoting God, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. So I just encourage you to read that. And then as you read that, Paul, who wrote it, has some imaginary objectors. Well, someone will say, do you guys remember reading that? But someone will say. And here's what someone might say. Why does God still, do you remember? Why does God still blame us? And so I encourage you to read Romans chapter 9. Look at the fact that Paul says, so now I've laid this out, but in response to that, someone will say, but why does God still blame us? And I would just tell you this. The only reason anyone would ask the question, why does God still blame us, is if what they just heard is that God is absolutely sovereign. The only context in which that objection makes sense is if they are objecting to the very stuff I taught in the first hour (laughs) and is in these notes. Why does God still blame us if He has planned everything? That's a legitimate question. And Paul is saying it's a common question. And then you can read Romans chapter 9 to find his answer. (laughs) All right, here it is. But who are you to talk back to God? Y'all remember that? Who are you to talk back to God? Can the clay say to the potter, why have you made me this way? So read Romans 9. And if you will do that, you will see that what I am telling you is precisely what God's Word says about a sovereign God whose sovereignty raises these kinds of questions. There is no doubt about that. And Paul deals with those questions. So, people will say, why does he blame us? Why does he hold us responsible? Such go the arguments of those trying to find an excuse for their sin. It's part of living, though. We live, in addition, in a victimization culture where all one's problems are really the fault of someone else. It's rare in our society to hear anyone simply stand up, take responsibility for his actions without evasion, blame-shifting, or rationalization. This tendency has a long and inglorious history because it's part of our sinful nature. And you notice we have reference there, Genesis chapter 3, 8 through 13. And you may remember what that is. The first sin is committed. God is questioning Adam and Eve and the serpent about it. And there is blame shifting going all over the place, right? It's the woman you gave me. It's the serpent you made. Ultimately, it's you, God. Our culture has perfected this by use of experts who are ready and willing to assure us it's not our fault. All of us are influenced by factors in our past, every last one of us. There's no doubt about that. But thanks be to God, in His mercy, our past does not have to determine our future. We're influenced by it, but it's not determinative. And yet, we live in a culture in which things that have happened to me, things that have been done to me, account for the things that, the things that I do, such that what I do, even if, even if evil are not my fault. You see the footnote there, bottom of page 6? Psychologist Dr. Carl Menninger, not a Christian, 
documented the early stages of this trend of victimization in 1973 with his book, Whatever Became of Sin. <laughs> Here's a non-Christian going, man, back, you know, when I was growing up, like people sinned. And now we're growing up in the Flip Wilson era back in the 70s. Everybody remember Flip Wilson? And the devil, what? More troubling still is how this approach has infiltrated the church. We often use the same victimization language as the culture with a spiritual twist. Jesus is seen as the one who, quote, saves from what's been done to me rather than what I've done. Now, again, I, I am not saying all of us have had things done to us. And some of us have had horrible things done to us. So I am not minimizing that. And I'm, I'm certainly not scoffing at that. And if that, if that has happened to you, if you have had things done to you, and particularly horrible things done to you, when you were in a vulnerable situation, then God is merciful to those who are vulnerable. And, and, and God cares about that, and the heart of God feels that, the Bible teaches. So I'm not making light of that. But all of us are not only people who have had things done to us, but we are people who do stuff. Yes, we are victims, but we are also perpetrators. In the middle of that second paragraph, this is especially troubling since it strikes at the heart of Christianity. The gospel is the good news that God has saved us from our sins. Now look, guys, from our sins, not our faults, not our fears, not our codependencies, not our past circumstances. Jesus has come to save. You will call His name Jesus, we saw in the first hour, for He will save His people from their what? And so we got to just man up and woman up and just say what God says. So we've got to use sin language. And to the extent we minimize sin, now see that sentence there, we minimize grace. When we fail to own up, we have no way to change our mind about it and thus repent. Notice change our mind is in quotes because that's what repent means. The Greek word translated repent, metanoia, meta-change. Noia, nous, mind. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of life. But I ain't got nothing to change my mind about <laughs> if I don't realize that I've sinned. Without repentance, there can be no salvation or growth. The Bible is emphatic that God is not the author of sin. Rather, we sin because we are sinners. James chapter 1, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when? By his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. All right. So how do you fit this together? In the three minutes we have left. This is my watch for now, my phone. I'm going to get a new watch so that you guys don't have to... You guys are all fearful that he's not wearing a watch again this week. I mean, he could go for another hour and not realize that there's nobody listening to him. So James says, you know, God is not responsible for sin, that God does not tempt people to sin. So how does his sovereignty and his plan and our evil nature and the sin we commit, how does it all fit together? God is absolutely sovereign in all the circumstances that occur in our lives. All of them. 
And within those circumstances that this sovereign God has given, we then make choices consistent with our nature. So, Pilate and Herod and Caiaphas and all the cast of characters who were there at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus, or God prepared every last minute detail of Jesus being there at that time in those circumstances with those people. And in those circumstances that a sovereign God prepared, they then carried out precisely what their evil natures wanted to do. God doesn't have to make them do it. He gives them enough rope to hang themselves. He puts them in circumstances where they do precisely what is required for his plan to be executed. And they do it of their own nature. Now, God sets up these circumstances so that if our natures were not evil, then in the same set of circumstances, rather than crucifying the Son of God, we could worship the Son of God. But the crucial difference is our nature, not the circumstance. So God is sovereign in the circumstances, and then people bring their nature to those, and they act exactly in accordance with what God has planned, and His plan goes precisely according to His decree. So with all of that, following are some principles that will help keep us from error or blaming God for our sin and its consequences. I'll just go through these quickly and we'll be done. Here's what we should do. Invoke the comfort of God's plan for things like acts of God and other circumstances noticed beyond our control. Genuine instances of victimization. These include common tragedies like a famine, an earthquake, terrorism. It would also include personal tragedies, cancer, involuntary layoff, crime, or being in a vulnerable situation and victimized by somebody who was supposed to protect you and not only did not but harmed you. Invoke comfort in those situations. Invoke the mercy, the mercy of God's redemption for sin when we violate His moral will. This would include mercy to endure the circumstances of sin as well as overcome the sin itself. Drunkenness that results in a loss of life. Laziness that's resulted in financial instability and so on. So we don't look for excuses as to why we did those things. We did them. But then we say, thanks be to God that He is mercy, merciful even in the midst of this. And Lord, help me to see my way through all the consequences of the mess that I've made here. And then confess regularly. The word confess means say the same thing. Literally, say the same thing. We must call sin what God calls it, accept our responsibility for it. It means using personal language and avoiding vague generalities. Notice in Psalm 51, after Nathan the prophet confronts David with his sin of adultery and murder in the Bathsheba-Uriah episode, David writes Psalm 51, but notice how he speaks. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned, and I've done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. You guys see that? You got no victimization stuff going on here. You know, you know, God, I was just, you know, I've been doing battle for you, by the way. <laughs> and I'm tired. 
And, you know, the, the wife had been away for a while, and, you know, Bathsheba comes and tempts me, and there's my excuse, right? And, you know, I had to have her husband, I had her husband killed because what's going to happen to the nation if people find out that their, their leader has done something as heinous as this? I mean, you could make up all kinds of things, right? But here's his confession, and you see how straightforward it is. That's the kind of confession that we need to have when we sin. Your sin, top of page 7, while part of God's eternal decree is not God's fault. We each sin because we choose to rebel against God, and God is perfectly just to judge us for sin. Through Christ's death and our faith in Christ, God's justice has met His love. That's a cool line. On the cross, God's justice, which punishes and rewards in this case, punishes sin because he is just and he must punish sin. But his justice has met his love in Christ on the cross so that we can have forgiveness for our sin and freedom from our sin and a relationship with God. All right, we're going to pray and finish. Thank you for your indulgence. But as we pray, I invite anyone here who has not come to the cross, which is the place where God's justice and His mercy, His love meet. And I invite you to do that right now. And you simply say to God from your heart in your own words to Him, I'm a sinner. I have sinned. I need the forgiveness that only Jesus can give. Forgive me. And I want to follow you with my life. You say that in your own words to God as we bow and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for this session and the opportunity to be reminded of the fact that you have given us light in the midst of darkness in the form of your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So, Lord, help us to use it. Help us to look therein to find your decreed, your, your revealed moral will for us. And then help us to pursue it, Lord, with all of the, the strength, the energy that only you can provide. And thereby, help us to take comfort in the decisions that we make not knowing how they'll turn out, but knowing that you're pleased, that we are attempting to follow you in the mercy and grace you provide by looking to your word and doing what it says. And Lord, we only desire this because you have given us that desire by your Holy Spirit. And we only have your Holy Spirit because we have come to Jesus. Those who come to Jesus, you grant the gift of your spirit. And you change us, you change our desires, and you move us in a new direction. I pray that there are people right now whose hearts are being changed so that from the inside out now they become new creatures, as your word says. They'll come back next Lord's Day eager to learn what your word says and how we can please you in the decisions that we make. Go with us this week, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.